You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg. We read Parshat Lech Lecha this past Shabbat. You know, sometimes it's good to get back to the roots. And in Parshat Lech Lecha, we really get back to the source. We read about Avram Avinu, our father Abraham. He leaves his home, makes Aliyah. And that's why this is everyone's favorite Aliyah Parsha, to promote Aliyah to the land of Israel, because Abraham does that. He leaves it all, leaves his family behind, his homeland, comes to the land of Israel. And that's the message to every Jew in the exile. Leave it all like Abraham did and come home. That may sound crazy now that Israel is in the middle of a war, but Jews aren't safe anywhere, especially on college campuses in America. There was an interview with one of the girls who was at that music concert in the desert when the Hamas uh, opened fire on them and slaughtered hundreds of them. She somehow got away, returned to the United States, and you know she said that she feels safer in Israel than she does in America. But besides making Aliyah, this Pasha shows a side of Avram Avinu we don't usually hear about. Avram Avinu is always that symbol of kindness, the epitome of, of chesed. But you know, we see in this Pasha, he also knows how to go out to war. Yeah, Avram Avinu, he goes out to war. He goes to war against four kings who defeated five kings. And it doesn't really make much sense. Why do you go to, out to this war this was like a suicide mission. He's got 318 men and he's going to go out to fight these four kings and their armies? For what? Not only that, but the verse says, that Abraham, he called out his fighting men. And the Midrash says, he called out, also means Vayarok. Yarok means green. That his men turned green out of fear of fighting against these armies. And they said, Five kings weren't able to beat them and we're going to be able to beat them. And another rabbi says in that Midrash, no, it was Abraham who turned green. And he said, Tov, I'm ready to fall on Kiddush Hashem to sanctify God's name. So what's going on here? Why do you go out to this war? So the key is this. It says that these four kings led by this guy, Amarfel, they seized all the goods of Stom and Gomorrah. And when they left, they also took Abraham's nephew, Lot. Oh, they took Lot. There's a special verse for Lot. And that's because this whole war was to get to Lot because Lot was Abraham's nephew and he represented Avram Avinu. He was the spitting image of Avram Avinu. Yitzchak wasn't born yet. Lot was considered the continuation of Abraham at that point. And who was this Amraphel who led the four kings? The sages teach us Amraphel is Nimrod. Why is he called Amraphel? From Lashon, Omar, Pol, he said to Abraham, jump into the furnace. So now we get a picture of what's going on. Nimrod and Avraham, they got a history together. It was the same Nimrod who was trying to convince Abraham to accept Avodah for him to bow down to fire. Abraham refused. There was a whole machloket between them. And now Nimrod is coming back and he's got Lot. Why does he got Lot? Because that's his way of getting at Avraham. Abraham was the one who was carrying the name of Hashem in the world. This was a war against the God of Abraham. And that's why Abraham had to go out. And it says that in the verse, When Abraham heard that his brother had been taken captive. Now Lot's not his brother, it's his nephew. But the verse says his brother. 
for all intents and purposes, it's his brother. He's got to go out and save him because this is a war against the God of Abraham. It's a religious war. Just like today, we have a war of Allah Akbar against the Kodesh Baruch Hu. The Arabs, like Nimrod, are trying to erase the name of Hashem from the world by slaughtering Jews. That's their entire goal. It's not even the land of Israel that they want. They want to kill as many Jews as possible. You probably all heard about that phone call where one of the Arab murderers spoke to his parents, proud that he killed 10 Jews, Al-Akbar, and his parents are celebrating on the phone. That's their goal, to kill Jews and to erase the name of Hashem from this world. So they come in the name of Al-Akbar, we come in the name of Kodesh Baruch Hu. Like David said to Goliath before he slew him, you come with a sword and a spear, but I come in the name of Hashem that you have taunted. So we have to come B'Shem Hashem, in the name of Hashem. And you know, the soldiers really are in that mode. My son Yehuda, he came back for the first time since he was deployed to Aza after the October 7th massacre. He was carrying one of these weapons called a Negev. It shoots like 150 rounds in like a minute. It's much bigger and heavier than the Galil or the M16. It's like a little cannon. And he didn't have much time to talk, but but two things I wanted to mention. He said that when they went through uh, Kibbutz Beri and through Azar a little bit, they're going in and out of Azar a little bit, they see dead Arabs and they got these little bottles around their necks. And those bottles are bottles of drugs. So maybe you had heard this already, but it was interesting hearing it firsthand. Besides the fact that Yishmaelites are beasts on two legs, now they're drug-crazed beasts to give them even more adrenaline to kill Jews. The other thing he said was that the morale of the soldiers is unbelievable. And he serves in pretty elite unit and it's secular Jews, mostly secular Jews, not religious Jews. And everybody wants Nikama. That's what he said. Everybody, they just want Nikama. They want revenge. They want to kill as many Arabs as they can, men, women, and children. All the soldiers want to, everybody. That's how they're feeling right now. So that's a good thing. Question is, will the commanders let them do it? My son told me that once the soldiers are in there, there's no stopping them. They'll just outrun the orders if they're told to stop. I don't know. I don't trust these generals. Jonathan Pollard wrote a very important piece. It appears on this station. You could check it out on Israel National's radio. And what he wrote about was how to destroy the Hamas, how it can be done. And he said that the IDF has the technology and he gets very technical about it. I advise you to read the article. He says that, that they have something that can penetrate these tunnels and slice through them and destroy them. And after penetrating these tunnels, they can employ something called vacuum bombs, which would suck out all the available oxygen in a given area and then ignite it like a flamethrower. And it could suffocate or burn everybody hiding in these tunnels. The IDF can do it. It would have a devastating effect on the Hamas and their weapons and their storage facilities and all they do in those tunnels if the IDF wanted to do it. If they wanted to, they could. Oh, there's all kinds of means that the IDF could employ if they wanted to. And I'll quote what Jonathan Pollard writes here. Any Israeli ground assault that doesn't involve this type of pre-entry preparation, that is all the technology that he mentions, the tunnel busters, the mini bombs that would obliterate all the buildings. He says that any ground assault that doesn't do this first before going in would needlessly endanger the lives of our soldiers and require a very, very long, costly process of house-to-house -house fighting. So there's a way to clean out Aza before you send the soldiers in. 
but the IDF refuses to employ it. And I want to remind you again, Jonathan Pollard's articles are on this station's uh, website. If you want to be the smartest guy in the room, start reading them. Uh, something you notice here that's very obvious during these during wartime is that there's a lot less Arabs walking around, a lot less Arab labor. I went to the drugstore the other day. I had to pick up some antibiotics. And, you know, the um, pharmacists are Arabs. But now that there are less Arabs around because of the war, you had like one Jewish pharmacist in the whole drugstore. We're waiting for like an hour for the most simple stuff. And, you know, I was happy. I was happy to wait and not have an Arab wait on me for once. And generally speaking, we have to wean ourselves off of Arab labor. It's ridiculous. Do you know that the army bases, army bases of Khelavir, the Air Force, the intelligence, there's Arabs walking around these bases. What happens is that these army bases hire a contractor. The contractor has Arab workers and they're on the army base. They get their permits, so it's okay. What do you mean it's okay? The Arabs who were working inside Israel from the Gaza Strip, they provided intelligence to the Hamas, which the Hamas used to carry out their massacre. So the only hope for us is to somehow wean ourselves off Arab labor. It's not healthy. It's not normal. I saw protests in Ariel the other day, something, something I've never seen before. People standing with signs, don't hire the enemy anymore. Jewish labor. People are beginning to understand it's dangerous having Arabs walking around your settlement. They're observing your movements. They're observing everybody's routine and they're reporting back to their Hamas brethren. This week on Thursday is the 18th of Cheshvan and that day is Rabbi Meir Kahana's Yortzai. Yeah, he was murdered on November 5th, 1990, but the Hebrew date is the 18th of Cheshvan. And today, you know, even the dumbest of the dumb, the slowest of the slow, the most stubborn of them all, admit today that Rabbi Gahana was right. After all, he was the one who warned about the fifth column of the Arab population in Israel. He warned, he cried out, he pleaded. And the chidush is, what made him different than everybody else is, he actually gave the answer to the problem. See, that's something nobody ever does. Everyone knows how to fetch, complain, how the situation is horrible, and we're stupid for making withdrawals from the land, and we shouldn't make deals with Arabs. But nobody ever tells you what you should do with the millions of hostile Arabs in your midst. Rabbi Kahana did, and that's what makes him unique. But when people say, yeah, Kahana today, Kahana was right, they mean he was right regarding the Arab issue. But you know, it goes a lot deeper than that. It wasn't just the Arab issue. What was right was his derech, you see? His derech was right. His way, his tactics, saying it straight, not sugarcoating things, not trying to be politically correct. His derech was right. The rabbi was speaking to a group of Jews in the 70s. It was like during the hippie movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And if you remember that period, there was somebody named Abby Hoffman. He was like a head hippie. Of course, he was Jewish. The symbol of the war protests and anti-establishment. And in this speech, Rabbi Ghana said, you know, when I speak to Jews, they always tell me, Rabbi, I like your ideas. I agree with your ideas. I just don't like your tactics. And the rabbi continued, when the Jews say they agree with my ideas, you're not telling me anything. What's there not to agree with? We're for Israel, for the flag, apple pie, for Jewish survival. What's there not to agree with my ideas? What makes me different is the tactics. So it doesn't mean anything when you say 
you agree with my ideas, but not with my tactics. And then the rabbi concluded like this. I much prefer what Abby Hoffman told me the other day. He said, Rabbi, I agree with your tactics. I just don't agree with your ideas. Now, Abby can still be saved. He's got the more difficult path. So I bring this story down because, yeah, the rabbi's derech, that's what made him unique. It wasn't the Arab issue only. It was his derech. It was the way he worked. He wasn't the only rabbi who understood well the Arab danger or, or knew what the Jewish law was regarding the hostile enemy in our land. Many rabbis agreed with him, but he can't say it. So the rabbi had the courage to say it. See, that's emunah, that's bitachon. To say the word of God, even if the media won't like it, even if it's not PC, he didn't care about that. So that's what it means, Kahan is right. I'll tell you what else it means. It means no relying on America. That was his message. Above all, we're a nation that dwells alone. No reliance on the nations because that shows a lack of faith in God. If you really believe in God, like we declare every day in our davening, we wouldn't be weighing every decision on the scales of what will the Goyim say. So that's what it means, Kahana Tzadik, Kahana's right. What else does it mean? It means that the salvation can never come from the Bibis of the world. Secular Zionism, it's doomed to fail. He used to say that we have more in common with Satmar than we do with the secular Zionists. And he was right. I mean, look what happened to Begin and Sharon. Look at the futility of a Bibi. Because a Jew who has no faith in Hashem will always shudder before flesh and blood, before the White House, even if Joe Biden, Mr. Magoo, occupies it. And since this week is Rabbi Karnas Yort's site, I want to I play a few audio clips of the rabbi responding to questions. The rabbi's message of Aravi Machutza, Arabs out, he said it loud and clear and at every rally, in every forum. And he was always met with the same question, but how are you going to do it? Listen to this very quick answer to that. I want them out. Wish them well. So the question is, but how can, how can you throw out a million people? So first, it isn't a million people. It's two million people. <laughs> Get your facts straight. Facts. Jews have no facts. What do you mean, how can you see? That's not the question. The question is, knowing that if they do not leave, the tragedy that they will bring on us, the horrors that they will bring on us, how can you not? It got cut off. What he said was, how can you not throw them out? How can you not throw them out? That is, knowing what they'll do to us if they could, how could you not throw them out? What do you mean, how? And the rabbi said this often at his rallies because he knew in the back of the minds of the people was that question, yeah, Avrahim Mechutza, yeah, Avrahim Mechutza, you got to throw out the Arabs. But how are you going to do it? And the rabbi would say, if you know what they're going to do to you, if you don't throw them out, a parent who knows that if he leaves Arabs here, they're going to rape his wife, mutilate his children, burn his house down. And then you ask, but how are we going to do it? What do you mean how? What is that, a technical question? Egged buses. What do you mean how? The light train. What do you mean how? That's the problem? He says that a parent who asks that question, knowing what will be, if you don't throw him out, that's not a parent, that's a criminal. I want to play some recordings of Rabbi Kahana dealing with the question of collective punishment, right? That's always a big topic. Everybody's so worried about the poor Arabs in Gaza if the IDF bombs Gaza indiscriminately. So I want to give some real quick responses the rabbi gave to those questions regarding innocent civilians. 
Here the rabbi mentions what the Allied bombers did in World War II. But I remember, I was a young in World War II. And I remember every night the Allied bombers going over German cities and bombing those cities with a thousand bombers at a time. Cologne and Hamburg and Dresden and Berlin. I don't recall anybody protesting the fact that they were bombing those, those cities. Who do you think was being killed there? Generals? When you're in a war against an implacable enemy, which, and especially the Arabs, who for 60 years have massacred Jews, have raped women, who would wipe out Israel if they could, I don't, I don't weep for them. It's that simple. It's my enemy. And I don't weep for my enemy. Now, also on the subject of collective punishment, this is during the days of the Intifada. And the rabbi was given a lecture at Minnesota University. And there's lots of Arabs and leftists in the audience. And there was a student panel there. And they also questioned him on this concept of collective punishment. After all, during the Intifada, the Arabs are planting bombs on Jewish buses, Jews getting killed. And the IDF or individual Jews at times would take actions against Arabs who are not necessarily the terrorists. And so what these students were saying to the rabbi was, look, you got good Arabs and you have terrorists. It's not right to generalize and hurt good Arabs just because of what the bad Arabs did. You can't paint with such a broad brush. They're saying that's collective punishment. It's not right. After all, not all the Arabs are engaging in the Antifada. So here's part of the response that the rabbi gave to the panel who were so concerned about the good Arabs. There is not one Arab in the world who a minute before he murdered a Jew was not considered as not a bad Arab. On the day that you can prove to me how you can pick out the ones who are going to kill Jews and not, then I'll have a little more moral feeling for you. But in the meantime, when my wife has to go on a bus and my children and my grandchildren into the marketplace, and I'm not sure when a bomb is going to go off, but thereby an Arab who until that moment was a good Arab, in your mind, says there's no collective punishment. It's not your wife. It's not your children. So don't be so moral at my expense. Yeah, don't be so moral at my expense. I guess we can say that Rabbi Kahana was the common sense of the generation. But imagine that the rabbis going on these college campuses, taking on students. I mean, today you have like Matt Walsh and Ben Shapiro doing it. And they're defending positions about gender fluidity. Is a man a man? Is a woman a woman? I mean, let's face it. That's really an easy position to defend, right? The rabbis going on these campuses talking about throwing out the Arabs? Collective punishment? That's a pretty tough position to defend on a college campus. But the thing is that when the rabbi spoke and presented himself this way and spoke this way, you know what Kiruv that did? You know how many Jews were given a jolt of Jewish pride to hear answers like this? I mean, they're used to Jewish speakers of the likes of Noam Chomsky. And then Rabbi Kahana comes along and he blows everybody away. And that's why Rabbi Kahana was so great at outreach because of the Jewish pride he projected because Jewish youth don't get inspired by sniveling, you know, nebishy lefty, you know, Noam Chomsky types. Well, I opened up this podcast talking about Avram Avinu, and he was called Avraham HaIvri, Abraham the Hebrew. What does it mean, Ivri, Hebrew? From the word other side, that everybody stood on one side 
And Abraham stood on the other side, Ha'ivri, however, he stood on the other side and he was right. He might not have been the majority, he was Dafka, a tiny, tiny minority, but he was right. And on that note, I want to bring a debate that Rabbi Kahana held against Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, Alan Dershowitz had two debates with Rabbi Kahana. You got to give him credit for having the guts to debate Kahana. And the first one was in the Bronx in 1984, a little bit after the rabbi won his Knesset seat. And the room was packed that night. It had the atmosphere of a heavyweight boxing match. And in the middle of this debate, Alan Dershowitz, he took kind of a cheap shot and he mocked Rabbi Kahana for having such a small base in numbers, such a small amount of supporters, even with his Knesset seat. How many supporters do you got? He got something like 24,000 votes. Big deal. So listen to how Alan Dershowitz tries to mock the rabbi for his small numbers and then listen to Rabbi Kahana's response. Rabbi Kahana, you're in the minority in Israel. You're in the minority in every possible way. I am pleased that you were elected to the Knesset because I thoroughly approve of Israel's democracy. But let's put your election in context. Had you gotten the number of votes you got in Israel, in the United States, you would not even be on the ballot of most of our states. You have gotten fewer votes than Angela Davis, the Communist Party, than Lyndon LaRouche, than the progressive pig farmer in New Jersey. You are a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the population of Israel. You speak for virtually no one. We must defend your right to speak because if your principles were ever established in Israel, you would be the first to be silenced. I want to tell you that by the same token, if the number of people that voted for the Likud would have voted in this country, they would have gotten one seat in Congress. And I, and, I, and I would have hoped that we could have kept this debate on a level above that of a demagogue. A minority? If that would be the standard by which we judge truth, then every Jew had better become a Christian or a Muslim. For we... For we Jews are a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. And by the way, I was there that night, and when Dershowitz said that Rabbi Kahana is a teeny, tiny, tiny fraction, he put his thumb and his index finger close to each other, like you go teeny, tiny, tiny. You know, like Gilda Radner in Saturday Night Live, you know, for the old folks. He put his index finger close to his thumb. You know what I mean? So when the rabbi said, we Jews are a teeny tiny, he did the same thing back to Dershowitz, and it was kind of cool. And as you can hear, the crowd went wild. That was a knockout punch, and there were many others that night. That's it for me today. Don't forget to tune into my Shirim in the Tanakh, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes, if you want to develop a thorough understanding and a love for the Hebrew Bible, 
you can tune into that because only in the Bible can you learn how did a normal Jew conduct himself before the exile. And I'll be back next week, same time, same station.